0: I'm 35 this year, so I don't know about you guys, but my Instagram, and I, thank you very much, thank you. I'm half, half the way there. Um, oh, I missed two clubs, the 27 club and the 31 club, so clearly I'm not a musician. LAUGHTER um, But my Instagram and Facebook feed is like full of kids because all of my peers are doing the kids thing, right? And so I'm learning more about like bodily functions and bodily liquids and bodily fluids than I care to admit. Uh, I'm learning more about like sleepless nights and it's not like my friends used to be like complaining about like hangovers and great parties. This is just more about like middle of the night explosive poo action. (laughs) It's all very strange. (laughs) The worst part of it uh, for me is that my one and only dearest sister who I love dearly has succumbed to this culture. Uh, from someone who was virtually offline uh, a couple of years ago, she has now taken to Instagram like a duck to water, and every single day I get on my Instagram, I have to scroll past you know, hundreds of photos of my niece who, well, let's face her, right? she's still pretty cute. I have a little video actually, apparently she looks like me when I was a kid, so I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. She was tasting sparkling water for the first time, uh, so clearly it's not a great thing. I don't like it either. So it is a kind of a strange thing, really, isn't it, to kind of figure out that we're watching these really poorly produced videos of our nieces and nephews and friends' kids who are struggling to do something which I'm doing right now without even thinking about it, like standing up. But I think there's something delightful about this as well. Like when you're watching those videos, there's something that's just so like, light and full of suspense in the way they do that, the way they're so focused on this task of getting up. And the delight and the encouragement of the parent as well, who's like, you can do it. Get back up again. You're amazing. I'm also not the biggest fan of shows like Australian Idol, or American Idol, I should say, or America's Got Talent, or The Voice. But over the years, I've been sucked in every now and again and you know, watched the episodes, and I get tired of the formula of it. But I think they've stumbled upon something that's a universal truth uh, that keeps us watching, and long after you know, the, the shows stop airing because the record labels realized that the winner sold 10 copies of the debut album, I think these things can, will continue on because the reason why these shows are successful is the same reason that we watch these really you know, terrible iPhone photos of our nieces and nephews. That's because we love to watch people grow. We love to, take, to watch them take risks to start something, to develop, to make mistakes, to fall flat in our faces. Get back up again, defiantly, and try it all over again. And we see it in the glimpses of like, the -the behind-the-scenes kind of uh, videos on the the voice. But in kids, there's something about it that's so wonderfully innate, their sense of discovery and their deep love for play. And that single-minded focus that just creates that suspension for a moment for them, and then also for us, the watcher. So we're wrapping up our Theology Of series uh, this week. And we've talked about some pretty big ideas in this series. We've talked about how work um, has an incredible function in our lives, and our spirituality, Important, the importance of taking rest, and also the, the idea of, take, of saying no, of, of stripping our life back to a life of less, so we might be able to pick up more. <clears throat> we've asked ourselves questions about how we see our bodies in relation to our health, um, and, make sure it's not, and make sure it's an integral, not a separate part of our spirituality. And today we get to talk about something that is arguably pointless or mainly, maybe extremely poignant, we get to talk about play. So right up front, let me tell you what I hope we get, try and get out of this morning. I hope that we can reclaim the gospel as something that brings joy, peace, and lightness. That the words of Jesus, which we sang a second ago through Robbie's song, that his burden is easy and his yoke is light, aren't just empty promises, but they become something that has a deep and lasting impact on our lives. That we'll find our way back to childlike wonder and <clears throat> understand ourselves to be loved by a God who delights in us. That our lives will exhibit a cheeky interaction with God, with ourselves, and with others that evokes interest and curiosity in our faith. Uh, who has seen the Sound of Music? Awesome. All right, so this is going to be really easy for you guys. For me, theology is like the song. You know, let's sing along. Ready? Let's start at the very beginning. The very, very best, best place, place to start, start when you you begin with. Awesome. All right. Have you got your Bibles? Or on your app, let's look up this very start of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. If you're new to church, that's, that's the very first book in the Bible. Genesis just means beginning. And I'd love a volunteer to read it aloud, please, if someone's got it. Anyone got Genesis 1? This side went last time. Has anyone over that side got it? I can see one. Isn't it amazing how different it is when everyone's just scrolling down? There we go. Thank you. In the beginning, God created. Sorry to cut you off. In the beginning, God created. Uh, it's the fifth word in the Bible and the first thing that we find out about God, that God is creative. Uh, for me, growing up in church, uh, you know—if any of those who maybe grew up in church, you, know, you have difficulty, I think, with the idea of who God is. Um, and for me, I discovered in university a deep love for the idea that God is creative. In fact, it's the, probably the only thing that I really talk to people about, who don't, people who don't have faith. Um, I think this captures my imagination. In the beginning, God created. The first thing we find about God is he's creative. God, the spark of all being, the force behind the universe. God whose words just brought things into being. God whose name is a series of breath like sounds that holds so much reverence for cultures such as the Jews, they dare not speak it aloud. This God is creative. And in Genesis one, if you cast your eyes like down the rest of that passage, you find God going around after every single day of creating something, after everything that's been created, and God's pretty pleased. See, day one, he creates light, he says, It's good. Day three, he creates land, he says it's good. Trees, sweet. Day four, sun, moon and stars, brilliant. You get the idea. God really liked what had been created. So I don't know about all of you in this room, but I know a lot of you do identify with the universally accepted notion of being a creative. So let's see a show of hands for these. Who here in this room has ever written a piece of fiction or non-fiction? Hmm, Pretty good. Who's written a song? Wow. More than I expected. More than the first service. Who's choreographed a piece of dance? Who's created a garment to wear? Sketched or doodled or tagged a wall? Who's given birth to a child? Good. Not not too many surprises there. I was making sure that Jeremiah wasn't just raising his hands, so, you know, like <laughs> automatically. Uh, who's baked a delicious chocolate brownie made from scratch? Ooh, yum! Who's piloted a new project? Has anyone built a building? Yeah, wow! Uh, launched a new initiative. Restructured a company. Written a budget has errat- that has eradicated debt from your life. All right, great. So, question: How does this feel after you've done this thing? After you've accomplished, what does that feel like? Good. Anything else? Super. Consume. Consuming. Delicious. Delicious. Yes, it does. Anything else? Say it again. Satisfying. Satisfying. Absolutely. It does feel incredible. And also comes, you know, the sense of tiredness too, right? You, you all of your resources are drained, but you, that tired. that's so happy that you fall asleep, you know, naturally as opposed to just being mentally drained. I think there's an elation that comes about when we create something and when we walk into creation... That's akin to rolling down a hill when you're a child. You know that feeling, you're end over end, gasping for breath. You've got you know, like grass stains in, in your jeans. You know your mum's going to kill you later. Maybe you've you know, like divoted your elbow into the, into the ground. But there's a sense of elation when we get to the bottom. That play brings a suspension of time. It brings a laughter and a lightness. And when we create, when we get in the zone, and when we hit our flow, the uh, saying comes to life that time flies when we're having fun. Yeah? There's this adrenaline that pumps in you, and you're feeling amazing, maybe a little invincible. It's no wonder that kids who played, and adults as well, jump off rocks and buildings. You're totally caught up in the moment. Uh, Recently, I went on vacation uh, with Sarah back to Sydney, and this time around, we decided we're actually going to come back through New Orleans on the way back to actually have a little vacation, because, as Jonathan Williams says, when you go on vacation with your family, it's not really vacation. Um, And so we met Ryan and BJ, good friends of ours, down in New Orleans, and we were exploring a brand new city. And one day, when we were walking past, uh, we noticed this wig shop and it was closed. So the next day, we came back uh, and we ended up spending an, an hour and a half in the wig store. When you walked in, the girl was so great and she puts this little cap on so it makes you look like Ryan, you know, like you end up with a, a nice, you know, clean slate to work from. And then you just start, you know, you pay $5 to do that and then you just start trying on wigs. I tell you, it was the most... Ama- I wasn't actually part of this. I was just kind of standing back and watching the three of these guys just trying wig after wig. And what I thought was incredible was, like, Ryan puts on this blonde, shaggy wig and he just starts going like this. <laughs> and he became a different person. There was this, like, immersion in this process that was just so wildly fun. He should have bought his wig today, but he didn't, unfortunately. And I think sometimes that's like play. Play really puts us in a spot where we're totally immersed in the whole process, where we just, you know, time disappears and everything else kind of just melts away. So hang on to that feeling for a second of kind of what I said, you know, when you finish that. And then just put yourself back into the passage in Genesis. God just separated light from darkness. He just created something from nothing. And God loves it. God delights in creation. There's great joy in God. So it's not so hard to understand now, is it? This kind of creation. So let's get to day six. Um, Is it Kristen, right? It is Kristen. Wow. Good to see you. Verses 26 and 27. Can I get you to read that for me? This is 2627. Okay. So we see like earlier on, you know, God's going through and he's calling, you know, things good as he's created them. What, what does God say after humans are created? You know? No, you're not like, oh, well, hashtag fail. Well, that sucks. <laughs> he says no. In verse 31, he says, God saw all he had made. It was very good. After he creates human beings, he's even more pleased than what he actually is on the rest of it. And I think sometimes we've got this upside down. We look at ourselves and we look at everything that we've done wrong, our mistakes, and we tell God, what you created was no good. But the Bible goes to great lengths to say that God delights in us in his creation. Uh, Obviously, you can find Genesis 1. I don't expect you to find Zephaniah 3.17. It's a very obscure book in the, the Bible near the end of the Old Testament. But the text puts it this way. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. So, this word rejoice here in this last line means to turn, to spin around under violent emotion, or basically to dance. So, what we discover here is that God dances over us with singing. That's crazy, right? Like God, like the creator, the spark of all being, the one whose words bring things to life, the one whose the one who sounds like breath with such great reverence. He delights in us. God is playful with us. He dances over us. So let's come back to Genesis for a second. Now, the second thing we learn when God created, humans to, God created humans is that he created humans to mirror God's own image. And what did we say that we first found out about God? He's creative. And what else do we find as we go through the passage? Of course, he's good, he's joyful. So God is creative and God is joyful. And if we're then created to mirror God's own image, what does that say about us? Is this true for us right now? Like, Would you self-identify this way in this moment, this week? And what's stopping you from fully embracing the life of play? Uh, I found this book online, um, well actually it wasn't me, it was Brian Moll, our lead pastor who just kind of left us recently, found this book online called A Theology of Play, it's written by a German theologian in the 1960s. Uh, the first time we actually tried to buy it, it actually was going for no less than $300 and it actually kind of piqued my imagination so I kind of I watched it on Amazon for a couple of weeks until I found one for 30 which I thought was much more reasonable. Uh, but this Theology of Play unpacks three ways in which I think we warp this theology of play. The first one is mediocrity. We say to God, I'm not creative. There's no way I could do that. I'm not created that way. Or we settle too easily for the lie that if we can't do it well, then we just better not do it at all. Or we say, I'm too busy at work to waste time on a hobby. It's not important. It's not that serious. So does fear of mediocrity get in your way of playing? The second one is monotony. We try to escape. We use play to forget. But that's not freedom, that's fighting fire with fire. We work so hard and then we play so hard and the cycle goes round and round. Play is the destination rather than than the starting point for our week. We're counting down the hours till Friday, wishing precious minutes away on a lie that play exists somewhere else in some other experience in some other time. We compartmentalize our life and end up rock- robbing our work of its potential for play and putting pressure on our play to stand up to its promise of relief, only to end up back around again in the Monday blues when our play falls short of expectation. So have you made, pay- have you made play a part of the monotony? The third one is Monopoly. Who loves this board game? I love this board game so bad. Uh, early in our marriage, um, Sarah and I, from time to time, my family loves board games, so we, we were are going to play board games. And one night, I had this craving to play this game, and we didn't have it, so we ran out to the mall and actually bought a copy. We played it twice. in The whole time we, we bought it, it was twice that night, and I crushed Sarah so bad, we never played it again. <laughs> and this is the point of it, right? We try to master our play. We're so competitive and we play to win rather than being transported or suspended by the act of play. We go on vacation and we schedule our days to the brim instead of being spontaneous. We turn our vacation into work, maximizing every second, rushing to do too much, achieve too much, be too many places instead of learning to breathe. Or the other way around is we become consumers, spectators of play rather than participants. In our culture now, we've literally turned play, game, sport into professional pastimes. And we're all the poorer for it. So, have you tried to monopolize your play? In all of these three things, we've cheapened play in some way. We've denied ourselves the right to play and delight in creation and just in our own being. One commenter I was reading remarks this. If you're not playing, you're not evolving. If you're not playful, you're only existing, not living. All of us go through periods where lightheartedness and play is difficult. However, if a month has passed and you have not played in any significant way, you may want to ask if you're participating in the natural flow of life or resisting it. If you aren't regularly experiencing moments of play, you need to take a hard look at how you are living your life. If God's creation is any indication, you may not be doing what you were designed to do. Remember, they're not my words, they're someone else's words. And look, I know this is a huge call, and for some of us in this, in this room right now, that, that hits hard. Uh, so let me just bear with me for a second. Uh, this week, in small group, Dorcas started talking about her top four uh, TED Talks, favorite t- TED Talks of all time. I love TED. In fact, recently, one of the things Sarah and I have been trying to do is pause at lunchtime and watch uh, a short thing, because usually they're between you know, 12 and 20 minutes. And so it's just a way for us to stimulate our mind and to try and distract ourselves from... The, the bulldog-like grip on, on kind of work. Um, so one of my favourites is this guy called Stuart Brown. Has anyone seen this? Players just more than fun. Anyone seen it? Brilliant. I get to tell you about it. Uh, Stuart's kind of in his 60s. He's pretty dry on the surface. You know, kind of is, he's a professor, you know, so he kind of lives in his head. and Like all professors, live in their head. You know, the rest of them are kind of a little stuffy. But his message is, is life-changing, he tells this story about rats, uh, that they, this study that they did. So they had two groups of rats. On one uh, group of rats, I'm sorry, you guys are one group of rats, you're allowed to play freely and just do whatever you want, like you know, you're not interfered with. You're allowed to kind of go about your ordinary life. On the other hand, the rats over this side of the room, uh, every time they got into some sort of play, they were suppressed, they were stopped, they were removed, and, and they kind of, you know, stopped from interacting with each other and with the kind of the act of play. And then at some point in both of these experiments, both of them were introduced the stimulus of cat, whether it was by scent or by fur, or whatever it was. And of course, you know, when cats introduce, the mice run away. What's super interesting is the group of rats who weren't allowed to play went into their holes and just never came out. They were too afraid to come back into the thing, and they literally died in their holes. Whereas the rats who were allowed to play, eventually they developed the curiosity that allowed them to come back out of their holes and come back into living life to explore their environment after the centre's gone. So what I think we learn from this is play is necessarily f- necessary for survival, for growth, for development. It's hardwired into rats, and it's even more so into us. Stuart Brown like, continues on after the story and says this, he says, ''We are the most neotenous, the most youthful, the most plastic of all creatures, and the most playful, and this gives us a leg up on adaptability.'' <clears throat> Has anyone heard the word "nyotni" before? Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, because you heard it first service. <laughs> Smart. Uh, the word "nyotni" just means this: a retention of immature qualities into adulthood. And so this starts to make sense to me that it's actually hardwired this idea of of play. If I start to see play less as a useless waste of time or as some childish activity, but start taking it seriously as a way of being flexible, adaptable, light and youthful, I begin to understand and accept that I'm not just some piece of rigid, brittle clay that God's done with, but an incredible piece of art that he is still working on, still fashioning with the ultimate care and skill. Play is a way that I remind myself to be open and to not take myself or my mistakes too seriously, and to no longer play merely with the past in order to escape it for a while but to increasingly play with the future in order to get to know it. Uh, I was reminded as I was writing this of a, of a liturgy which we used early in the year, which quoted uh, Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy. So what I'd love you to do right now is grab out your crayon. Um, and as I read this passage aloud, I want you to take a second to think about something that you used to enjoy that perhaps you might have put aside because it no longer seems useful to you or it seems maybe childish or immature. And I want you to take a second to confess to yourself and to God that we've let something go which created great delight in us. Or perhaps we've just covered it up or packed it to the bottom of our priorities. Maybe it's a moment to confess to God uh, and to remember who you were before you started adding tasks and to-dos. You can use your crayon, if you haven't been doodling already, to write that down on a piece of paper and then, I don't know, maybe make make an airplane, launch it somewhere, do whatever you want with it. Uh, Anyways, here's the Chesterton quote. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children, when they find some game that they specially enjoy. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony but perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. So, what are we supposed to do with this message? Uh, well, it's easy, right? We just play. Or is it or is that easy? Uh, I, I have to admit, I've struggled a lot with this message this week. Uh, this is my first time actually speaking in New York. Uh, I did it a little bit back in my church, well, a lot in my church back home, um, but I've never in my life ever literally like written out my whole entire message. And there's a few things that are different. And so I was nervous, to be honest. And in my nervous, you know, in my nerves, anxiety kind of got the better of me, and, and I started all of those old kind of things started coming back. And what it made me realize is that in order for us to play, we literally actually have, have to practice to play. We literally have to be freed up in order to play. Um, so here's a couple, of th- a couple of suggestions, a couple of things. Stuart Brown, and, and uh, he was talking about him earlier, he suggests that we explore backwards in our past, as far as we can go, to find the most clear, joyful, playful image that you have. Hold that in here for a second. What is it? Is it a toy? Is it a vacation? Is it a place? Then he says, Then begin to build from that motion to your life now. He says this idea of retracing our play history may enrich our lives by paying close attention to what makes us come alive. That's a great idea, and I want to share one more with you. Um, Early in our marriage, Sarah went to this mental health seminar and came home. She was super excited about this idea that she wanted to share with me that she'd heard the presentation on. Um, And she came home and she's like, There is this thing called self-talk. And we all do it. It's like, you know, this voice that babbles inside our brain and and gets on there. Well, I don't know whether you know much about Aussie males, but we are a cynical bunch. And I was like, what a load of rot. (laughs) Like, nobody does that. Anyone who's speaking inside their brain is mentally ill, like, literally. I was like, I dismissed it. I'm sure my disdain for it, you know, was I didn't hold it back for one second. But then the strangest thing happened. Like, as I thought about this over the next week and the next month, I started realising I was the chiefest sinner when it came to this. Um, I was in university at the time, and uh, whenever it came down to time to actually write an essay, I would find myself wrestling with thoughts that was every piece of criticism I'd ever received in my life. Um, I would sit down, and it would take me hours, literally days. Uh, I'm not kidding. My last university essay, my final essay, was six weeks late. This is how bad it became for me. And and one thing that became even worse was that... (coughs) um, i have been writing songs since I was 13, but I'd never actually had the means to record them. And so during university, I found my first recorder and was given that and went home and recorded some songs, excitedly pressed play. What came out of the recorder to me sounded terrible. I hated the sound of my own voice. Like, I was wrestling, would I ever sing again? That was how bad it was. Um, The more I listened to these recordings, the more I hated every single song. I'd picked apart every single mistake, and it almost completely tripped me up. (coughs) Almost stopped me from writing forever. Uh, so I had to face the fact that this voice was very, very loud for me. Uh, I thought it was something just to be endured and just to get through. It was just part of life. Uh, but years later, when we first moved to New York City, one of the things we were trying to do and determine was to actually literally interrupt our rhythms. Uh, we we moved here basically because Sarah was bored in her job and we were kind of at a kind of a crossroads in our life. Um, so we started to trying to do a couple, of th- you know, a couple of practical changes, we started trying to exercise more, and we determined to get more creative uh, again as a couple. And so we, I don't know how we found it, but we found this book called The Artist's Way, I don't know if you, any of us have heard of them, a few people have. Um, we started working through this this book, and the first chapter, this very first tool the book outlines is called Morning Pages. This is what it is, it's three pages every day, I encourage you to write, longhand writing, like write out by hand, not not typing, not whatever, strictly stream of consciousness, or more it's more called ingloriously the brain drain. But what took my breath away was the description of why we do this as a practice, as we read through this book. I'll put it up here on the screen. As blocked artists, we tend to criticize ourselves mercilessly. Even if we look like functioning artists to the world, we feel like we never do enough, and what we do isn't right We are victims of our own internalized perfectionist, a nasty internal and eternal critic, the censor, who resides in our left brain and keeps up a constant stream of subversive remarks that are often disguised as truth. The censor. I finally had a name for this horrible voice in my head. It, It makes me mad even just reading that like name out loud. Uh, But in early 2012, Sarah and I embarked upon this. Every morning, you know, with our coffee and our oatmeal sitting in the window of our downtown apartment in Manhattan, we just pour out uh, all of the junk out of our brains. And both of us admitted, like, we felt better. We felt more quiet. We felt more centred. And I felt like I often had moments of epiphanies um, where I felt a sense of purpose and an action I would like to take and move into my day. The author actually promises and says this. She says, Beyond the reach of the senses babble, we found our own quiet center, the place where we hear the still small voice that is at once our creators and our own. I'm sad to say that like this habit didn't stick. We did it for a couple of months, and and, and like all things, you know, like you know, I started work and, and things kind of like got on top of us. Um, but even on particularly difficult days, like yesterday when I was like, really struggling to write the end of this message and really dealing with massive criticism in my brain, I literally sat down and did this exercise to try and unblock the drain. They encourage you to not ever read those things again, but out of curiosity I went back and started reading some early entries from 2012 and it's pretty incredible stuff. i got to say, it's some of the most juvenile, some of the most immature things. And I think that's the point. Uh, Sometimes they feel like desperate, dangerous prayers, like the message version of Psalm 5 says, Listen, God, please pay attention. Can you make sense of these ramblings, my groans and my cries? God, I need your help. Every morning you hear me at it again. Every morning I lay out the pieces of my life on your altar and watch for fire to descend. So I think while ever the censor is raging in my head and your head, while ever you are so incredibly tough on yourself, while while ever you are dealing with this kind of opposition, play and creativity is hard going. And it falls short of the immersive experience that it's supposed to be. It doesn't feel like suspension or relaxation. It becomes a source of even deeper frustration and disconnection. and it leads me to use plays in all of the ways that look like mediocrity, monotony or monotony. I'm sure there's plenty of ways um, to, to do this, you know, silence the sense, and I have experienced them in other ways in my life. Uh, most of them involve some sort of silence with deep thinking or meditation or prayer. I'm not saying these morning pages are the only way. I'm just sharing with you my experience uh, with that. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about others later with Forefront. We're, just, we're adopting a book of common prayer at the moment amongst our staff, and I'm already finding that to be helpful, but we're a week and a half in, so I'll tell you about it later. <laughs> uh, So in case you're thinking these morning pages are just the artist thing, the author goes to great lengths to tell a wide variety of people from lawyers to housewives and even socialites have used it with great results. And I believe that it is this critic or this censor or whatever you want to call it that often tells us that play is useless, that it's not for adults, that there's something more important, more critical to be done, and they're often mirroring... Uh, someone, something that people have said to us. Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a grandparent, a teacher or an adult figure in our lives that told us we need to grow up, there isn't any time for this anymore, that life is a serious affair. Uh, but this week I was introduced to a C.S. Lewis quote um, and I cannot shake the significance of it so I want to read this aloud to you. Critics who treat adult as a term of approval <clears throat> instead of merely as a descriptive term cannot be adults themselves. To be concerned about being grown up, to admire the grown up, because it is grown up, to blush at the suspicion of being childish, these things are the marks of childhood and adolescence. And in childhood and adolescence, they are, in moderation, healthy symptoms. Young things ought to want to grow, but to carry on into middle life or even into early manhood, this concern about being adult, is a mark of really arrested development. When I was 10, I read Fairy Tales in Secret and would have been ashamed if I had been found out doing so. Now that I am 50, I read them openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. Bless you. So, in closing, I wanted to read the, the words of Jesus in John chapter 10. He says this. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy but i have come that they may have it, that they might have life and have it abundantly i think it's time i think it's time for us as christians to stop letting the thief or the critic or the censor steal our joy and delight i think it's time for us to uncover or maybe remember the person god created us to be before we added tasks and to-dos it's time to rediscover play as a serious part of our life and our spirituality it's a matter of survival i want to finish with a series of of photos uh, that Stuart Brown kind of uses that tells this amazing story about play and survival. You can see in this first image, uh, this is a hopeless kind of situation. This happened right outside of um, a research center. And these two uh, dogs here, these huskies who are sled dogs, are both chained up. Uh, and so what you can actually see is, is you know, a polar bear who is coming down. Here's the predator and his prey. And we all think the end of the story is you know, going to be a very, very quick fight to the death. Well, what actually happens, you can kind of see this a little bit in kind of this dog. It looks like it's, it's barking here, but in a second it's going to do downward facing dog from yoga. Everyone knows kind of this. This is a universally accepted symbol of play, of submission. And so this dog starts to do downward dog, and what you start to see on the next slide is this. It's phenomenal. What actually should have been, you know, like an ending is now this beginning of play and delight, and these two incredible creatures just roll about each other. Next slide as well. Like this. <laughs> so to me, I think this is what can happen to our critic or our sensor. I think this is what can actually happen in our lives, is that we don't have to let this stuff overwhelm us. In fact, maybe our first response to the critical, or the censor is, play with me, you know? Yes. Come on in. So I want to leave you that this morning. We're going to take communion in just a second, and I would love us to take this bread and this juice in a posture of thankfulness and celebration and remind ourselves that God joys and delight is in us. Will you guys pray with me? God, you are ridiculous, amazing, wonderful. You are our creator. You created us for your delight and joy. Would you uh, convict us this morning as we've uh, confessed to you that sometimes we've let go this joined light? Would you convict us that this is who we need to be—simply people who are loved by you, simply people who want to be around you? Uh, God, would you let us uncover our play history? Would you let us find something to silence the voice in our head that tells us that play is not integral—that's not part of not part of it—that's not what adults do? Would you help us to kind of shed that? We love you, God. We thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.